Book two of the Spirit of the Laws. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Benjamin Giddens. The Spirit of the Laws by Charles de Secret, Baron de Montesquieu. Translated by Thomas Nugent. Book two of Laws directly derived from the nature of government. Chapter one of the nature of the three different governments. There are three species of government, republican, monarchical, and despotic. In order to discover their nature, it is sufficient to recollect the common notion which supposes three definitions, or rather three facts. That a republican government is that in which the body, or only a part of the people, is possessed of the supreme power. Monarchy, that in which a single person governs by a fixed and established laws. A despotic government, that in which a single person directs everything by his own will and comprise. That is what I call the nature of each government. We must now inquire into these laws, which directly conform to this nature, and consequently are the fundamental institutions. Chapter 2 of the Republican Government and the Laws in Relation to Democracy. When the body of the people is possessed of the supreme power, it is called a democracy. When the supreme power is lodged in the hands of a part of the people, it is then an aristocracy. In a democracy, the people are in some respects the sovereign and in others the subject. There can be no exercise of sovereignty but by the suffrages, which are their own will. Now the sovereign's will is the sovereign himself. The law, therefore, which establishes the right of suffrage are fundamental to this government. And indeed, it is as important to regulate in a republic in what manner, by whom, to whom, and concerning what, suffrages are to be given, as it is in a monarchy to know who is the prince, and after what manner he ought to govern. Libanaeus says that at Athens, a stranger who intermeddled in the assemblies of the people was punished with death. This is because such a man usurped the rights of sovereignty. It is an essential point to fix the number of citizens who are to form the public assemblies. Otherwise, it would be uncertain whether the whole or only a part of the people had given their votes. At Sparta, the number was fixed at 10,000. But Rome, designed by providence to rise from the weakest beginnings to the highest pitch of grandeur, Rome, doomed to experience all the vicissitudes of fortune. Rome, who had sometimes all her inhabitants without her walls, and sometimes all Italy, and a considerable part of the world within them, Rome, I say, never fixed the number, and this was one of the principal causes of her ruin. The people in whom the supreme power resides ought to have the management of everything within their reach. That which exceeds their abilities must be conducted by their ministers. But they cannot properly be said to have their ministers without the power of nominating them. It is, therefore, a fundamental maxim in this government that the people should choose their ministers, that is, their magistrates. 
They have occafion, as well as monarchs, and even more fo, to be direfted by a council or fenate ; but to have a proper confidence in thefe, they fhould have the chufing of the members, whether the eledion be made by themfelves, as at Athens, or by fome magiftrate deputed for that purpofe, as on certain occafions was cuftomary at Rome. The people are extremely well qualified for chufing thofe whom they are to intruft with part of their authority. They have only to be determined by things to which they cannot be ftrangers, and by fafts that are obvious to fenfe. They can tell when a perfon has fought many battles, and been crowned with fuccefs ; they are therefore capable of electing a general. They can tell when a judge is aflidious in office, gives general fatisfadion, and has never been charged with bribery. This is fufficient for chufing a praetor. They are ftruck with the magnificence or riches of a fellow citizen, no more is requifite for electing an aedile. These are facts of which they can have better information in a public forum than a monarch in his palace. But are they capable of conducting an intricate affair, of feizing and improving the opportunity and critical moment of action? No, this surpasses their ability. Should we doubt the people's natural capacity in respect to the discernment of merit, we need only cast an eye on the series of surprising elections made by the Athenians and Romans, which no one surely will attribute to Hazard. We know that, though the people of Rome assumed the right of raising plebeians to public offices, yet they never would exert this power. And though at Athens the magistrates were allowed, by the law of Aristides, to be elected from all the different classes of inhabitants, there never was a case, says Xenophon, when the common people petitioned for employments which could endanger either their security or their glory. As most citizens have sufficient ability to choose, though unqualified to be chosen, so the people, though capable of calling others to an account for their administration, are incapable of conducting the administration themselves. The public business muft be carried on with a certain motion, neither too quick nor too slow. But the motion of the people is always either too remiss or too violent. Sometimes with a hundred thousand arms they overturn all before them, and sometimes with a hundred thousand feet they creep like insects. In a populous state, the inhabitants are divided into certain classes. It is in the manner of making this division that great legislators have signalized themselves, and it is on this the duration and prosperity of democracy have ever depended. Servius Tullius followed the spirit of aristocracy in the distribution of his classes. We find in Livy and in Dionysus Halicarnassus in what manner he lodged the right of suffrage in the hands of the principal citizens. He had divided the people of Rome into 193 centuries, which formed six classes, and ranking the rich, who were in small numbers in the first centuries, and those in the middling circumstances, who were more numerous in the next, he flung the indigent multitude into the last. And as each century had but one vote, it was property rather than numbers that decided the election. Solon divided the people of Athens into four classes. In this he was directed by the spirit of democracy, his intention not being to fix those who were to choose, but such as were eligible, 
Therefore, leaving to every citizen the right of election, he made the judges eligible from each of those four classes, but the magistrates he ordered to be chosen only out of the first three, consisting of persons of easy fortunes. As the division of those who have a right of suffrage is a fundamental law in republics, so the manner of giving this suffrage is another fundamental. The suffrage by lot is natural to democracy, as that by choice is to aristocracy. The suffrage by lot is a method of electing that offends no one, but animates each citizen with the pleasing hope of serving his country. Yet as this method is in itself defective, it has been the endeavour of the most eminent legislators to regulate and amend it. Solon made a law at Athens that military employment should be conferred by choice, but that senators and judges should be elected by lot. The same legislator ordained that civil magistracies attended with great expense should be given by choice, and the others by lot. In order, however, to amend the suffrage by lot, he made a rule that none but those who presented themselves should be elected, and that the person elected should be examined by judges, and that everyone should have a right to accuse him if he were unworthy of the office. This participated at the same time of the suffrage by lot, and that of by choice. When the time of their magistracy had expired, they were obliged to submit to another judgment in regard to their conduct. Persons utterly unqualified must have been extremely backward in giving their names to be drawn by lot. The law which determines the manner of giving suffrage is likewise fundamental in a democracy. It is a question of some importance whether the suffrages ought to be public or secret. Cicero observes that the laws which rendered them secret towards the close of the republic were the cause of its decline. But as this is differently practiced in different republics, I shall offer here my thoughts concerning this subject. The people's suffrages ought doubtless to be public, and this should be considered as a fundamental law of democracy. The lower class ought to be directed by those of a higher rank, and restrained within bounds by the gravity of eminent personages. Hence, by rendering the suffrages secret in the Roman Republic, all was lost. It was no longer possible to direct a populace that sought its own destruction. But when the body of the nobles are to vote an aristocracy, or in a democracy the senate, as the business is then only to prevent intrigues, the suffrage cannot be too secret. Intriguing in a senate is dangerous. It is dangerous also in a body of nobles, but not so among the people, whose nature is to act through passion. In countries where they have no share in the government, we often see them as much inflamed on account of an actor as ever they could be for the welfare of the state. The misfortune of a republic is when intrigues are at an end, which happens when the people are gained by bribery and corruption. In this case, they grow indifferent to public affairs, and avarice becomes their predominant passion. Unconcerned about the government and everything belonging to it, they quietly wait for their hire. It is likewise a fundamental law in democracies that the people should have the sole power to enact laws, and yet there are thousand occasions on which it is necessary the Senate should have the power of decreeing, nay, it is frequently proper to make some trial of a law before it is established. The constitutions of Rome and Athens were excellent. The decrees of the Senate had the force of laws for the space of a year, but did not become perpetual till they were ratified by the consent of the people. Chapter 3 Of the Laws in Relation to the Nature of Aristocracy in an aristocracy, the supreme power 
is lodged in the hands of a certain number of perfons. Thefe are invefted both with the legiflative and executive authority, and the reft of the people are, in refpeft to them, the fame as the fubjeds of a monarchy in regard to the fovereign. They do not vote here by lot, for this would be productive of inconveniences only. And indeed, in a government where the moft mortifying diftinctions are already eftablifhed, though they were to be chofen by lot, ftill they would not ceafe to be odious. It is the nobleman they envy, and not the magiftrate. When the nobility are numerous, there muft be a senate to regulate the affairs which the body of the nobles are incapable of deciding, and to prepare others for their decision. In this case it may be said that the aristocracy is in some measure in the senate, the democracy in the body of the nobles, and the people are a cipher. It would be a very happy thing in an aristocracy if the people, in some measure, could be raised from this state of annihilation. Thus at Genoa, the bank of St. George being administered by the people, gives them a certain influence in the government, whence their whole prosperity is derived. The senators ought by no means to have the right of naming their own members, for this would be the only way to perpetuate abuses. At Rome, which in its early years was a kind of aristocracy, the senate did not fill up the vacant places in their own body. The new members were nominated by the censors. In a republic, the sudden rise of a private citizen to the exorbitant power produces monarchy, or something more than monarchy. In the latter the laws have been provided for, or in some measure adapted themselves to the constitution, and the principle of government checks the monarch. But in a republic where a private citizen has obtained an exorbitant power, the abuse of this power is much greater because the laws foresaw it not, and consequently made no provision against it. There is an exception to this rule when the constitution is such as to have immediate need of a magistrate invested with extraordinary power. Such was Rome with her dictators, such is Venice with her state inquisitors. These are formidable magistrates, who restore, as it were by violence, the state to its liberty. But how come is it that these magistracies are so very different in these two republics? It is because Rome supported the remains of her aristocracy against the people, whereas Venice employs her state inquisitors to maintain her aristocracy against the nobles. The consequence was that at Rome the dictatorship could be only of short duration as the people acted through passion and not with design. It was necessary that a magistracy of this kind should be exercised with lustre and pomp, the business being to intimidate and not to punish the multitude. It was also proper that the dictator should be created only for some particular affair, and for this only should have an unlimited authority, as he was always created upon some sudden emergency. On the contrary, at Venice, they have occasion for a permanent magistracy, for here it is that schemes may be set on foot, continue, suspended, and resumed, that the ambition of a single person becomes that of a family, and the ambition of one family that of many. They have occasion for a secret magistracy, the crimes they punish being hatched in secrecy and silence. This magistracy must have a general inquisition, for their business is not to remedy known disorders, but to prevent the unknown.
In a word, the latter is defigned to punifh fufpeded crimes, where the former ufed rather menaces than punifhment even for crimes that were openly avowed. In all magiftracies the greatnefs of the power muft be compenfated by the brevity of the duration. This moft legiflators have fixed to a year ; a longer fpace would be dangerous, and a fhorter would be contrary to the nature of government. For who is it, that in the management even of his domeftic affairs would be thus confined? At Ragufa, the chief magiftrate of the republic is changed every month, the other officers every week, and the governor of the caftle every day. But this can take place only in a fmall republic, environed by formidable powers, who might eafily corrupt fuch petty and infignificant magiftrates. The beft aristocracy is that in which thofe who have no fhare in the legiflature are fo few and inconfiderable, that the governing party have no intereft in oppreffing them. Thus when Antipater made a law at Athens that whosoever was not worth two thousand drachmas fhould have no power to vote, he formed by this method the beft aristocracy poffible, becaufe this was fo fmall a fum as to exclude very few, and not one of any rank or confideration in the city. Aristocratic families ought therefore, as much as poffible, to level themfelves in appearance with the people. The more an aristocracy borders on democracy, the nearer it approaches perfection, and in proportion as it draws towards monarchy, the more it is imperfect. But the moft imperfect of all is that in which the part of the people that obeys is in a ftate of civil servitude to thofe who command, as the aristocracy of Poland, where the peasants are slaves to the nobility. CHAPTER four of the relation of laws to the nature of monarchical government. The intermediate, subordinate, and dependent powers constitute the nature of monarchical government. I mean of that in which a single person governs by fundamental laws. I said the intermediate, subordinate, and dependent powers. And indeed, in monarchies, the prince is the source of all power, political and civil. These fundamental laws necessarily suppose the intermediate channels through which the power flows. For if there be only the momentary and capricious will of a single person to govern the state, nothing can be fixed, and of course there is no fundamental law. The most natural, intermediate, and subordinate power is that of the nobility. This in some measure seems to be essential to a monarchy, whose fundamental maxim is, no monarch, no nobility, no nobility, no monarch. But there may be a despotic prince. There are men who have endeavoured in some countries in Europe to suppress the jurisdiction of the nobility, not perceiving that they were driving at the very thing that was done by the Parliament of England. Abolish the privileges of the lords, the clergy, and cities in a monarchy, and you will soon have a popular state, or else a despotic government. The courts of a considerable kingdom in Europe have, for many ages, been striking at the patrimonial jurisdiction of the lords and clergy. We do not pretend to censure these sage magistrates, but we leave it to the public to judge how far this may alter the constitution. Far am I from being prejudiced in the favour of the privileges of the clergy, However, I should be glad if their jurisdiction were once fixed. 
The queftion is not whether their jurifdidion was juftly eftablifhed, but whether it be really eftablifhed ; whether it conftitutes a part of the laws of the country, and is in every refpedl in relation to thofe laws ; whether between two powers acknowledged independent, the conditions ought not to be reciprocal ; and whether it be not equally the duty of a good fubjeft to defend the prerogative of the prince, and to maintain the limits which from time immemorial have been prefcribed to his authority. Though the ecclefiaftic power be fo dangerous in a republic, yet it is extremely popular in a monarchy, efpecially of the abfolute kind. What would become of Spain and Portugal, fince the fubverfion of their laws, were it not for this only barrier againft the incurfions of arbitrary power? A barrier ever ufeful when there is no other. For fince a defpotic government is produftive of the moft dreadful calamities to human nature, the very evil that reftrains it is beneficial to the fubjeft. In the fame manner as the ocean, threatening to overflow the whole earth, is ftopped by weeds and pebbles that lie fcattered along the fhore, fo monarchs, whofe power feems unbounded, are reftrained by the fmalleft obftacles, and fuffer their natural pride to be fubdued by fupplication and prayer. The English to favour their liberty, have abolished all the intermediate powers of which their monarchy was composed. They have a great deal of reafon to be jealous of this liberty. Were they ever to be fo unhappy as to lofe it, they would be one of the moft fervile nations upon earth. Mr. Law, through ignorance both of a republican and monarchical constitution, was one of the greateft promoters of abfolute power ever known in Europe. Befides the violent and extraordinary changes owing to his direction, he would fain fuppreft all the intermediate ranks, and abolifh the political communities. He was diflblving the monarchy by his chimerical reimburfements, and feemed as if he even wanted to redeem the constitution. It is not enough to have intermediate powers in a monarchy, there muft be alfo a depository of the lords. This depository can only be the judges of the supreme courts of juftice, who promulgate the new laws and revive the obfolete. The natural ignorance of the nobility, their indolence and contempt of civil government, require that there should be a body invested with the power of reviving and executing the laws, which would be otherwise buried in oblivion. The prince's council are not a proper depository. They are naturally the depository of the momentary will of the prince, and not of the fundamental laws. Besides, the prince's council is continually changing. It is neither permanent nor numerous. Neither has it sufficient share of the confidence of the people. Consequently, it is capable of setting them right in difficult conjunctures, or of reducing them to proper obedience. Despotic governments, where there are no fundamental laws, have no such kind of depository. Hence it is that religion has generally so much influence in these countries, because it forms a kind of permanent depository. And if this cannot be said of religion, it may of the customs that are respected instead of laws. Chapter 5. Of the laws in relation to the nature of a despotic government. From the nature of despotic power, it follows that the single person, invested with this power, commits the execution of it also to a single person. A man whom his senses continually inform that he himself is everything, and that his subjects are nothing, is naturally lazy, voluptuous, 
and ignorant. In confequence of this, he neglects the management of public affairs. But were he to commit the administration to many, there would be continual disputes among them. Each would form intrigues to be his first slave, and he would be obliged to take the reins into his own hands. It is, therefore, more natural for him to resign it to a vizier, and to invest him with the same power as himself. For creation of a vizier is a fundamental law of this government. It is related of a pope that he had started an infinite number of difficulties against his election from a thorough conviction of his incapacity. At length, he was prevailed on to accept of the pontificate and resigned the administration entirely to his nephew. He was soon struck with surprise and said, I should never have thought that these things were so easy. The same may be said of the princes of the East, who, being educated in a prison where eunuchs corrupt their hearts and debase their understandings, and where they are frequently kept ignorant even of their high rank, when drawn forth in order to be placed on the throne, are at first confounded, but as soon as they have chosen a vizar and abandoned themselves in the seraglio to the most brutal passions, pursuing in the midst of a prostituted course every capricious extravagance, they would never have dreamed that they could find matters so easy. The more extensive the empire, the larger the seraglio, and consequently the more voluptuous the prince. Hence, the more nations such a sovereign has to rule, the less he attends to the cares of government, the more important his affairs, the less he makes them the subject of his deliberations. End of chapter 4 End of book 2 of Spirit of Laws